Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The following podcast includes explicit language, not restricted to words beginning with F, S, B, and Q. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of April 5th slash 6th, 2021. On this week's show, we're going to talk about Baylor and Stanford's men's and women's national basketball titles and Jalen Suggs' final four buzzer beater. We'll also look at Major League Baseball's decision to move this year's All-Star Game in response to Georgia's new voting law. And Arizona State Professor Victoria Jackson will be here to help us assess Alston v. NCAA, the Supreme Court case that could determine how college athletes get paid or whether they get paid at all. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm the author of The Queen, the host of Slow Burn Season 4 on David Duke. Also in D.C., Stefan Fatsis. I'm not in D.C. (laughs) Also kind of sometimes in D.C., Stefan Fatsis. He's the author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. I just feel close to you, I guess, is the issue. Spiritually, I'm always in D.C. Well, not really. But I'm in Western Massachusetts right now. Uh, Welcome, wherever you are. With us, surrounded by the resounding um, noise from the Stanford uh, Victory Parade, it is uh, Slate staff writer, host of Slow Burn Season 3 and upcoming Season 6, Joel Anderson. Congratulations. You know, we, we can... Have you claimed Palo Alto since things didn't necessarily go as we had hoped for Houston over the weekend? Well, same as you know about how things went in the tournament. Uh, my, my squad <laughs> <laughs> maybe went a little bit further than yours, but it didn't quite work all the way out. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to call Palo Alto a little championship city uh, for another day If it makes you feel two. better by bringing other people down, then it does. I understand. It, 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 I act, understand. it actually very much does, yeah. That's that's pretty much my ethos. I'm happy to provide that service for you in your time of need. <laughs> Can I ask a quick question, by the way? I, I, of course. My whole life, Always. my whole life, and this is kind of for Stefan, my whole life I'd, I'd never heard anything about Western Massachusetts. I didn't even know that Massachusetts was big enough to be separated into parts like <laughs> Western or <laughs> Southern or Eastern. And I, I feel like in the last year, I've heard more about the existence of Western Massachusetts than I had in the previous 40-some odd years of my life. There you go. Yeah. You know, there's some excellent college basketball out here. Williams, Amherst. Williams? Okay. What league is that? Like NESCAC or something like that? You know what I'm talking about? It might be NESCAC. Is that that's what it is? Impressive. Okay. I, I'm, I, I don't know. I can't be sure. I wouldn't okay. need to look it up, but that sounds right. Seems like a league that those schools be in. Yeah. Before we get into the first segment, it's important to note that, yes, Williams is in the NESCAC. But the NCAA Men's Basketball Championship on Monday was exactly the game college basketball fans wanted all year. Gonzaga against Baylor, a matchup of the two best teams, all pandemic shortened season long. And within a few minutes of the opening tap, it was clear the Zags weren't going to be up to the challenge. Baylor jumped out to a 9-0 lead and never looked back at an 86-70 victory. Spoiling Gonzaga's bid to be the first men's undefeated champion in 45 years. Josh, 
It was hard for me to really appreciate the championship game without thinking about the semifinal that preceded it. Not the one where Baylor beat Houston. That game never happened as far as I'm concerned. I'm talking more about Gonzaga's Jalen Suggs making a buzzer-beating three in overtime against UCLA. And uh, we'll play a clip here. Gonzaga has time to do something. Suggs for the win. So, Josh, what do you think we'll be more likely to remember in the future? Suggs' shot or Baylor taking him and Gonzaga completely apart in the final? So I've been thinking about this, and I did a little piece after Suggs' shot off the backboard in that semi, some some late-night exuberance there, trying to assess where it placed in history and the fact that Gonzaga got the crap beaten out of them in the final maybe takes it down a notch but still like i remember random buzzer beaters like james forrest against usc or you know whether it's like bryce drew or tyus edney way more than i remember just like any national champion Mm -hmm. like i was just thinking this morning like remember it wasn't that long ago when dante divincenzo just like totally went off the national title game for villanova i didn't remember who they were playing (laughs) i had to look it up that it was michigan and so I think just based on my own memory and life experience, I think I will remember the Jalen Suggs buzzer beater. I'll, I'll remember kind of what I shouted when it went in. I'll remember where I was and, and what it felt like. Maybe because these just individual small moments are more indelible and easier for us to remember. But the Baylor victory was so comprehensive and so impressive and yet Stefan maybe it was the fact that it was so thorough and comprehensive and impressive that like no kind of individual moment stood out and I guess in some ways that's to Baylor's credit in other ways I'm just like being honest that I don't know if I'll be able to like recall like I can today like Macy Oteague and Jared Butler and Davion Mitchell, unless they like become NBA stars. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the game was felt over <laughs> after five minutes. I mean, it, it wasn't that, that Gonzaga couldn't come back from a double-digit deficit, and but I think that they'd only trailed by double digits twice over the course of their first 31 games. One was in the regular season, and one was against UCLA. It just felt like such a complete annihilation that it was one of those games where you kept saying, wow, I really hope they come back. And then you checked yourself and said, man, there's no way they're coming back. Um, they cut it to nine in the second half. And then Baylor said, not in our house, and pumped it back up to 15 or 16. <laughs> not, in, not in their house, the <laughs> Indianapolis. Of Indianapolis. Yes, Lucas exactly. Oil Stadium. That's right. Yes, yeah, it was their house, house in the end. Um, so Baylor said, not in our house. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Baylor basically said, fuck you. We're not going to lose this. Um, I mean, it was a, such a total, you know, it was a, it was a train wreck of a game for Gonzaga. They couldn't do anything offensively. Um, Baylor was hitting threes left and right and playing stifling defense. I mean, it was clear who was the better team on this night, whether they were the better team over the course of the season. But Gonzaga was 31-0. Ken Pomeroy's metrics had them as the best team of the last 20 years. So it did feel surprising 
um, that this was not the exciting game that I think we all were hoping for. Yeah, and I, I do think we'd be more inclined to remember champions if there were more correlation between winning a championship and being the best team. You know, and that's, you know, I always complain about this. Really? And it does make me a fuddy daddy. Well, just the tournament is great for drama. It's great for ratings. It's great, you know, for, for, for competition. But in terms of determining who's the best team in any given season, it's just not that. And I'm not saying that Baylor isn't because watching that game, it was hard to think, it was hard to figure out a way in which Gonzaga was better than Baylor, right? But, you know, they had been over the course of the season. They have probably, of the two teams, the one, the, I guess, the best NBA talent in Jalen Suggs. And, you know, they've kind of proven that, that, that the, the entire season. But, I mean, again, a one-game sample, anything can happen. And Gonzaga's coming out of a game, a, a, a tremendously emotional, draining game where they had to go deep into overtime just to win that game. There's just no way to know, like, two nights later to, to, to summon that same kind of energy and intensity against a team even better than the one you just beat. I mean, it's not necessarily going to go in your favor. If those two teams had played on a neutral site in January, like, I don't presume that Baylor would beat Gonzaga by 16 points. Like, like they were supposed to. Josh, I, I, I wonder whether Baylor's blemished record, they lost two games during the season, maybe obscured their greatness, um, especially when everybody was kind of distracted by Gonzaga running the table. Um, Baylor didn't play, though, between February 2nd and February 23rd because of a COVID shutdown. Um, when they came back, they barely beat an Iowa State team that was 2-16 at the time. They were, losing to, they were losing in that game by 17 points. I mean, that, to me, even more than the two losses, is an indication that Baylor was severely compromised yes. when it came back mm-hmm. from that COVID pause. I mean, there's no way that this Baylor team or any other Baylor team that would be at anything ap- approximating full strength would struggle with an Iowa State team that finished 2-22. and 22. No, and then, and then four days later, they lost to Kansas by 13, and then they lost in the Big 12 semifinal to Oklahoma State by 9. Yeah, so I like partially sign on to everything that Joel said. You know, I think we've seen especially in the last decade or so with the rise of the three-point shot, that if you're making your threes, then things can go like sideways really quickly. And, uh, you know, I don't want to, I, it pains me deeply to, to do this, but like, if you watch like the Rockets and the Warriors in that uh, series in the, oh. in, the, in the playoffs, it's just like making or missing threes can make a team look like a world beater or like they just are absolute trash, just like depending on the night. And so I, I think, you know, looking at the stats, I wasn't following Baylor super closely in the beginning of the tournament, but like they put this graphic on the screen and it's like Jared Butler had some like pretty horrible shooting numbers early in the tournament. And you like watch the final four and you're like, how could this guy have ever missed a shot? I mean, it, it like it doesn't seem even even possible. And so Baylor did have the best three point shooting team in the country. So it's not like this was like random and they pulled it out of their butts. I'm like arguing all possible sides here. But the <laughs> the other thing is they were offensive rebounding all of their misses. And so the the reason that this game was so dominant is like Baylor could have won this game. I think even if they didn't make their threes, yes. just because they were grabbing yeah. everything, or if they weren't 
getting any offensive rebounds. They still would have won anyway because they were making so many shots. So again, if you watch that game, it did not feel like the outcome was in any way undeserved. And yet, I still think there's a universe um, because we have seen, especially in the NBA, when you do these like best of five or best of seven series, how like things can flip between games so dramatically. Like it's totally possible that Gonzaga could have won on a different night. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, I wish there was some sort of way for me to prove this since I'm not tweeting about anything other than the Isley Brothers and Earth, Wind, and Fire. But, you know, Saturday afternoon, like 12 minutes into the Baylor U of H semifinal, it was like I realized, like, oh, I've not seen Baylor's guards this year. Like, they're unbelievable. Like, they're like. I they're, love Davion Mitchell. Oh, that guy is, like, so I, good. I kept. I kept texting people. I was like, Davion Mitchell is a bad motherfucker. Like the Jets should consider him the number two pick in the with the number two pick in the draft. Like I I would follow that dude anywhere. And he reminded me so much as a guy who covered What about the baseball draft? Number one in that. I don't field. know. Well, I mean, if you were outfield, I mean I think he'd be great. Maybe probably pitch too. But I, he reminded me so much because I covered this team many years ago. And he the, the the comp I have for him is like Tony Allen with like a competent offensive game. Um, because I had just not seen anybody defend anybody like that, like in college. Like, I mean, he, he was the National Defensive Player of the Year. And that doesn't mean anything like when you read it. But when you see it on the floor and you see how he's getting up into people's chest and moving his feet and totally cutting off drives, you're like, oh, like, that's special. Like, I don't know anybody else who can do that. And so, like, that that convinced me. I was like, oh, man, maybe Baylor is so much better than I even thought. I just didn't know. But like Stefan said, those two losses made me sort of be like, eh, that how could they be as good as Gonzaga? But that's uh, that's clearly not the case. What do you guys uh, remember about Jalen Suggs's buzzer beater before we move on to Stanford? It was I know it was like three days ago at this point, so it's <laughs> a, a distant and, and and foggy memory. But as I wrote, the thing that for me was so special about it and kind of put it in a different. I would taxonomize it a little bit differently is that it happened in the flow of the game Mm -hmm. as opposed to out of a timeout and you sort of like didn't realize what was happening until it happened. And for me, that's just like what basketball is and and should be. Stefan, what was your uh, memory of it? My memory of it was me just staring with my mouth open. I mean, it was astoundingly it was incredible. It was exciting. It was exactly that. The game didn't stop to set this up. And Gonzaga's head coach, Mark Few, said afterward that that was intentional. He had a timeout. There were 3.3 seconds left in the game. He had a timeout, and he said, I don't like to call timeout in that situation because I think you can make an open court play better before they set up their defense. From Few's perspective, it was smart coaching, but it was also great for us um, that the possibility of something like this happening in real time without a long delay and either a commercial break or Jim Nance talking some more, um, this made the moment more indelible as you wrote, Josh. I mean, it was the, you know, you add up the elements, the opponent, the situation, and the 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 way it happens, the way it transpires, and it really is like near the top or at the top with uh, some of the other two or three that you cited. I wish I could sportingly argue with Josh about whether or not it's the greatest buzzer beater of all time, but like I just I don't think that I can summon it. Like I, I do, I do think the Leitner shot against Kentucky in '92 is like just like from the pass to the shot, like it may have been the more impressive 
shot, but in terms of like the stakes and how, I mean, to have the presence of mind as a freshman, to know to beat the defense back down the floor like that, mm-hmm. um, it's just, it's just, it was just incredible. Like just to watch it, to watch it happen. It was kind of the perfect ending to like what was a game. Like the NCAA tournament had not had a game like that. The NCAA should be very fortunate if like that's the game that people remember from this season because like it was, one of the best that any of us have ever seen. Well, the other thing about it, Josh, was that there were people on Twitter, one notable idiot who gets paid $8 million a year, saying that it was lucky. <laughs> I know who you're talking about. I'm, I'm, it was lucky. It wasn't lucky at all. I mean, he crosses half court, squares up at the logo, and takes a shot, the kind of shot that we have become accustomed to seeing people like Steph Curry and Dame Lillard take and, you know, and, and others take as a matter of course in basketball games. That's the kind of shot this was. But, you know, best player possible, number one or two draft pick in this situation as a freshman. <laughs> Clearly, it was something that he had practiced, right? And then I think Gonzaga said afterward that they do practice, that they did practice that. Well, well, Paul Pierce was busy over the weekend, but oh. as he as he as he once said, "I called game." You know what else was great about it was Suggs's reaction that he didn't stop after releasing the ball; that he just kept moving mm-hmm. across the court. It was beautiful. It was cool. just so balletic, and then he ends up by the scorer's table and jumps up and celebrates. It was great. I don't know why Stefan won't bring up Skip Bayless's name, but that's fine. We can bring that up in, the, in a lighter segment. Now let's move on to the women. So on Sunday in the women's title game, number one overall seed Stanford barely completed an unprecedented title run with its third win of the year over Pac-12 rival Arizona. It was by far the closest of their three games this season, with the Cardinal forcing Arizona star Ari McDonald into a miss on what would have been the game-winning shot. But nothing came easy for Stanford this season. COVID protocols in its home county, Santa Clara County, my home county too, forced the women's team into 27 road games and 86 nights in a hotel en route to Stanford's first national championship in 29 years. Here's a clip of Stanford senior point guard Kiana Williams talking about how Stanford wasn't going to let any old deadly virus get in their way. In September, when we first got back to campus, uh, we all got in trouble for breaking quarantine. Um, we were supposed to be, you know, in isolation for five days. And, you know, on the fourth day, we, we went to a, a, a gym off campus to, to play pickup. And um, when she found out, she was just so heartbroken and, and disappointed. And I felt like... Um, the only way to make up for that is to win a national championship for her. So me, Anna, and Liz, um, you know, we, we said from there on out we're going to be better leaders, um, you know, follow the rules, follow protocol, and to, to win this natty and, you know, to look back on that, that experience um, and having that feeling to, to now I'm extremely proud of this team. And I also want to add I feel like it was worth it going to play those pickup games. So, Stefan, a heartwarming story about overcoming adversity or another reminder in all the many ways in which college basketball tried to minimize the impact of a deadly pandemic this year. Well, obviously it's both, right? <laughs> it's a heartwarming story about breaking quarantine and potentially exposing yourselves to, to COVID. Um, but Stanford and Baylor and every other college basketball team had to deal with this. These are, you know, 18 to 23-year-olds. They didn't have a lot of choice here, as in no choice. I mean, some schools chose to keep things as normal as much as they could. Around 20% of games were canceled or postponed along the way. 
you know, after Baylor won its title, Jared Butler talked about how it's harder to win this year than ever before with the stoppages and testing and the sacrificing your social life just so you can play basketball games. I mean, the players couldn't see their families. They were locked inside of hotels. This was absurd. And Stanford's absurdity was probably the worst of all. They were barred from campus. They were barred from their hometown. According to a rundown in The Athletic, they went from Menlo Park to Santa Cruz to a week in Arizona, back to Menlo, five nights in Santa Cruz, back to Menlo, two nights in Salt Lake City, three in Boulder, Colorado, Menlo, Santa Cruz, Menlo, et cetera, et cetera, capped off by three weeks in Texas for the women's tournament. Yeah, there's a kind of correlation causation issue here because both Baylor and Stanford said after they won, it's like, oh, we wouldn't have been able to do this if we weren't so close or if the, the, this experience bonded us and it allowed us to overcome adversity on the court because we overcame it off the court. Well, I think when you win the championship, you're probably going to say that. Um, and the other teams that didn't win, maybe they were just as close. And they every team had to overcome adversity this year. And so I, I think it's not to minimize or kind of poo-poo what Stanford and Baylor said, but just that it's a commonality that everyone had in the sport this year, that everyone was forced into these kind of terrible situations and doing it at a time we're um, going to talk about shortly when there's a lot of conversation about the unfairness of this sport and the lack of compensation. And that was never as stark as it was this year. But, you know, like in this in this title game, Joel, there was also the kind of quote unquote normal kind of overcoming of adversity that we saw, like Haley Jones, who was the number one recruit for Stanford in her recruiting recruiting class and had a knee injury her freshman year and then came back this year and was the most outstanding player in the final four and was the key to her team winning in the semis and was the key to her team winning in the final. Like that's the us- that's the type of sports adversity that we usually like to talk about. Yeah, right. And I mean, you know, even Keanu Williams, who we heard there in the clip, um, you know, she played the championship game in her hometown of San Antonio and, and folks talked about that and, you know, sort of the, the nerves around that and, you know, which should have been a triumphant homecoming and like she didn't play very well. Like, I mean, she played Arizona star uh, guard, uh, Ari McDonald. I mean, she's just amazing. She's amazing. And so she made the night really difficult for them. And yet, and still they overcame all that. Uh, and that actually was sort of my thing. Cause I guess I'm just going to be the person that complains about tournaments over and over again. But like, my sense of fairness was that Stanford should have even had to play that game because, because, I mean, they'd already beaten Arizona twice. You know what I mean? Like, if they beating them a third time proved nothing. You know what I mean? Like, they, they, I mean, they get to win a championship, but if Arizona beat them for the championship, does that mean that they were a better team than Stanford? No. They, but, you know, they had the benefit of getting to play them a third time. But thankfully, Stanford held on and won. But it just, uh, it just goes to speak to, you know, I mean, how random this all is. The the only other thing that I thought about with this is that unlike the men's championship game, which got exactly the game it wanted, it got Baylor versus Gonzaga. I kind of felt like, and I, I don't hate to be the sort of person that like the women's game got denied UConn. You know what I mean? Like I, I know Arizona was like kind of the school that everybody, you know, they kind of were the little underdog and they didn't even get included in like the promo for the final four. And they kind of used that to motivate them. But I kept thinking about how much better 
it would have been if Stanford had gotten a chance to play UConn and everybody got a chance to see Paige Beckers sort of in the showcase game of the season. But, you know, I mean, if you're a fan of the game, you'll you'll see her next year. But I just that was one thing that kept kind of going through my mind. I'm like, Arizona shouldn't even be here and they should be able to play UConn, you know, to make this a fun sort of a a little bit more of a fun, more high profile matchup. This is an innovation in bulletin board material. You don't, yeah. you don't even, hmm. it, it's not just limiting it to saying a team doesn't belong yeah. before the game, but saying after they win <laughs> and beat the team that they still don't belong. That's good. That's, oh, Arizona. That's pretty, oh, yeah. 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 I mean, I mean, you, I mean, don't, you don't think that's fair to have to beat a team three times in a year? Like, I, I just, it, a championship game so, uh, didn't prove anything. No, I'm, I mean, that I'm happy that LSU me. is the retroactive national champion the year they beat Alabama. Yeah. Oh, man, get out of here. Yeah. Right. It doesn't I bother mean. me at all, Joel. <laughs> this is like, this is how conference play works in college basketball. You play each other twice during the season, and they happen to be good enough to make it to the finals. Yeah. This I was mean, a they, rubber they, game. This is what mattered. And, and look, Arizona whomped UConn. I mean, maybe it was an off night for the Huskies. Um, but they got blown out. They didn't. They never led. They didn't get closer than five points over the last like thirty minutes or so of the game. Um, it was an inspired performance, and it was yeah. it was an example of okay, we're gonna sit here and say probably accurately that game proved that Baylor was better than Gonzaga. Like this was a blowout where maybe it didn't prove the same thing, but on that night it was there was no question about it. And it was like an inspirational uh, performance. From from Ari yeah. McDonald lighting it up and scoring twenty six points um, to the post game huddle in which Adia Barnes, the head coach of Arizona, flipped off a double bird in the huddle that was caught on camera. Um, it was, you know, this was a great team and, you know, and, and taking the narrative, uh, great, the great team, itself. great team, great team, a little strong. I mean, they lost five games, <laughs> six games this year, but okay, that's fine. Well, great team. I was going to say in all of the, in all of the ways that a tournament like this coronates great teams. I mean, Arizona was just a great story on and off the court. You had Ari McDonald leading this team, charismatic, great little player. I mean, then you had the head coach, Adia Barnes, um, African-American woman making the finals while nursing a baby a few weeks after the NCAA basically said that children would be counted against the total number of people that that the women's teams could bring to the tournament um, for COVID reasons. This sort of had it all, this storyline. And then for them to go out and crush the great UConn Huskies um, made them a really endearing and memorable team. Yeah, we didn't even get a chance to talk about uh, Stanford and South Carolina, which Stanford basically went through the Gonzaga game against UCLA, but they had enough gas to hold off Arizona in the final. So um, anyway, yeah, well, I guess we'll, we'll revisit this again. Congratulations to Baylor. Uh, I, you know, I, I hate that school, but uh, they, they earned it. So congratulations to terrible Baylor University. And, of course, uh, Stanford, my home team. So coming up after the break, Major League Baseball's decision to move the All-Star game out of Georgia. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to do a trivia contest. It's been a while since we did uh, Hang Up Trivia. I've got a game for Joel and for Stefan, and for all of you guys to play along with. I think you'll enjoy it. To hear it, you have to be a Slate Plus member. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. 
you earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. As a heads up to our listeners, yesterday we recorded our upcoming segment about Major League Baseball moving the All-Star game from Georgia. Well, since then, the league has announced that it will move this year's game to Coors Field in Denver. Got that? The All-Star game is now going from Georgia to Colorado. More in this segment to come, and thanks for listening. On Friday, Major League Baseball announced that it's moving the 2021 All-Star Game and the 2021 MLB Draft out of Georgia in response to the state's new voting law, SB202. In a statement, Commissioner Rob Manfred said, Major League Baseball fundamentally supports voting rights for all Americans and opposes restrictions to the ballot box. Fair access to voting continues to have our game's unwavering support. The Atlanta Braves, who would have hosted the All-Star Game, responded with a snippy statement of their own, saying that while the organization will continue to stress the importance of equal voting opportunities, unfortunately, businesses, employees, and fans in Georgia are the victims of this decision. Donald Trump predictably said his followers should boycott baseball, but it wasn't just the Braves and the Trumpists and Fox News who cast doubt on MLB's decision. Voting rights activist Stacey Abrams said she was happy the league and its players spoke out, but that she didn't support moving the game, a move, she said, would hurt the state economically. We'll get into the law itself in a minute, what it says and what it does. Uh, But Joel, let's start with Major League Baseball. In 2016, when the NBA announced it was pulling its All-Star game from Charlotte because of North Carolina's bigoted trans bathroom bill, We could say, oh, that's basketball that has a younger, more liberal fan base. It's got a progressive commissioner, Adam Silver, yada, yada. But baseball has neither a young or a liberal fan base. Rob Manfred, not known for being progressive. And yeah, we can talk about corporate and sponsor pressure having a lot to do with this decision. But it is worth noting that golf's PGA Tour announced last week that it's not moving its season-ending tour championship out of Georgia. So what do you think baseball is doing here? So I think like any other large corporation, uh, Major League Baseball was reluctantly dragged into a political fight that it wanted no part of, but simply could not avoid. And I just, a lot of that is because they're a victim of bad timing. Their all-star game just happens to fall this year at this time in the midst of this large political fight. So they couldn't really run from it. And I think the tell of that is this. Anyone who has remotely followed politics in the last year, or like even the last 50, knew that Georgia Republicans and Republicans in state houses all around the country were going to rush through a series of so-called voter reform laws, right? Like they telegraphed this the whole damn time, including when people were running up into the Capitol complaining about a stolen election. Like this was all telegraphed. We knew this was coming, and nobody said anything, right? Like there wasn't there wasn't any of this talk about a boycott or anything before that. Like that, like they acting like this is something new. So like when Georgia legislators were meeting and drafting as this bill, there was plenty of time for everyone to speak up and say, "Hey, this is wrong. We don't support it. And if it passes, we're prepared to take action." The MLB, Coca Cola, Delta, 
Chick-fil-A, but not Chick-fil-A, because I'm sure they side with the, the, the bill as it is. But they all could have said this in February. They could have applied pressure before the law passed, let everyone know what the political and economic stakes were there. But they didn't, and now everyone is scrambling here at the 13th hour. So, you know, I guess, like, the league has been, you know, clearly headed in this direction. Last summer, they were delivered a statement about Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. They talked about how the game has zero tolerance for racism and racial injustice. They're featuring black and brown players as the faces of the game. They know what the predictions about the country's demographics are. They can't afford to be dragged into the future. But to be honest, it doesn't matter, like, what the Major League Baseball believes. Like, the important thing is that they're putting their money where their mouths are. I don't want to belittle or, like, diminish this decision because I think it actually is meaningful. But I just do wish that... They had been ahead of this. There was an opportunity to get ahead of it, and now they're behind it, and now they're dealing with the political fallout. I think that Major League Baseball acted the way a big, entrenched, politically divided sport in America that isn't the NBA is going to act. I mean, they were reading tea leaves in February, right? They were probably hoping that this bill would not pass, that this wouldn't happen, and they wouldn't be put in a difficult position. But once they were put in this difficult position, they kind of did the right thing here. And I think that does deserve some credit. I think this is better than baseball saying, we don't want to get involved in politics, or we support everyone's right to vote, but we feel like we've made a commitment to Atlanta and the Braves to stage the all-star game there this year. I think baseball looked at this and said, fuck it, these people aren't worth it. Why get on the wrong side of, of everybody else here? This was a position that is supportable. It is palatable. It does not make baseball look like reactionaries. Um, and the downside is pretty small. Well, the downside, I think, is one that, for instance... The NFL and NFL team owners didn't want back when Donald Trump was president and they were deciding what to do about the racial justice protests, that downside being becoming a kind of pariah in conservative media and in conservative circles. I mean, it's not just Donald Trump, it's Tucker Carlson, it's Fox News, it's Georgia Governor Brian Kemp. And for an organization like Major League Baseball, which does have as a major part of its, you know, ownership and constituency, people that align with conservatism and who do skew older. This isn't something that Major League Baseball has any interest in being involved in. And there is a different way forward here that the PGA Tour, I think, is trying to toe a very different line and putting out a statement that's like, we believe in voting rights, but... Also, we're not going to move our championship. And they could have chosen that different path and aligned themselves with Stacey Abrams and said, we don't believe that this is right. We think it's wrong. We stand strongly against it. But we also don't believe in punishing the good people of Georgia. And we're not going to run from this fight. We're going to come be there and be involved in this and speak out against it from this place where we have a team and where we have this huge potential event in July where we can make that a centerpiece. And so they chose, it's not like they had no 
options here, Joel. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, and I'm sort of curious, maybe you guys can help answer this for me. Are people sort of overstating the economic argument here? Because do people really come into town from all over the country in the middle of a pandemic for an all-star game? Like, we know that when municipalities and towns and cities host these events, it ends up costing those those areas more money than they end up getting in terms of economic benefit. Like, we're just taking them at face value that this is going to hurt them economically, too, I think. I think maybe it's a great showcase for the city on TV, but, like, who in the hell isn't aware of Atlanta? You know what I mean? Like, nobody is going to watch the All-Star game and be like, well, I wasn't thinking about Atlanta before, but now I see it on uh, TV. This must be great. So I just, I I think, to me, at least, people are overstating also the economic implications. But maybe I'm wrong on that. I'm open to No, 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 you're absolutely right. I mean, the the economic implications of one game over a, a weekend with some ancillary fan zone and hotel sales are totally overblown. This is a zero-sum stuff, right? The, if there were no All-Star game the way there is going to be no All-Star game in every other major league city this summer, there is no lost economic benefit here to the city, frankly. And I th- Well, I think it would bring attention, and maybe that's part of Major League Baseball's calculus. Sure. Like, okay, it might it might sound good in the moment to be like we're not going to cancel this because we're going to like stay and fight for what we believe in but do they really want their kind of showcase game an event of the summer where like all the stars that they're highlighting in these commercials are going to be do they want that whole thing to turn into some sort of public service announcement about voting rights where like Fernando Tatis Jr. and Ronald Acuña and Mike Trout instead of being asked about their feats on the field are asked like what do you think about um, what Republicans are doing to voting in America or or even more than that Josh what if the players you know led by this this coalition of African-American players, the Players Alliance, decided to to take a stand. I mean, the reporting so far was that, no, the players weren't going to boycott the All-Star game because of this, but it sure as hell would have given them a terrific platform to make a statement about this, and that would have made both Atlanta and Georgia and Major League Baseball, their employers, look pretty bad. Yeah, also... Imagine trying to do this, though, hold an all-star game that's going to be tied so explicitly to the memory of Hank Aaron, right? Like a guy who did not want to go to Atlanta in the first place because it wasn't an integrated uh, city at that point. So yeah, imagine them having to play that game against the backdrop of all of that. Like it just seems like, <laughs> again, I'm not saying that the MLB and Rob Manfred aren't for voting rights so that they're not politically engaged in some of this stuff. But like the timing of it is, I think, more salient here than their political ideology. And the, this hasn't been brought up that much, but there's also the symbolism of playing the game in a stadium in suburban Co- Cobb County. It's not yep. actually in the city mm-hmm. of Atlanta. And when the Braves moved there, there's all this talk about, oh, Turner Field, the old stadium is in like a crime-ridden neighborhood and all of this like kind of not particularly coded racial talk and it's like moved to this place that's not accessible by rail because people in Cobb County, predominantly white suburban county, voted not to extend the rail system, mm-hmm. you know, to their their community. And so symbolism there is not particularly no great no and I, I, would, I would take it a step further Josh that this is this game would have been hosted by a team at a time when the Washington football team is changing its name the Cleveland baseball team 
has agreed to change its name. And here's another team with a Native American name and racist imagery in its logos and, and other stuff over, over time where fans very likely would have been performing a racist chant when mm. one of the Atlanta Braves players came to the plate during the game and, as you said, left the majority black city. This looks bad on this. This could have looked bad on that score, too. Yeah. I mean, man, I, just to sort of double down on that point, I mean, they moved to Cobb County where there's a Lester Maddox bridge. And for people that are not familiar with Atlanta or Georgia, Lester Maddox was an explicitly segregationist governor who got elected in like in the early 1970s. Right. Like like this is even almost within the span of our lifetimes that Georgia has this guy. That bridge still exists today. That's on the way uh, to the stadium there right now. So it's like, I mean, all the imagery is working against Georgia and Atlanta, the Atlanta area in particular right here. Like, it's like you guys are in no position to hold any judgment against anybody else. Like, clearly you all have your own issues that you're dealing with. And it's okay if people from outside of Georgia or Atlanta step in and say, you know what? Don't think we want to be here. Don't want to be involved in that. Don't want any of that imagery involved with our showcase game. Yeah, you mentioned Henry Aaron. I mean, uh, as Howard Bryant pointed out on Twitter over the weekend, the only reason that Atlanta has a baseball team is because the city agreed to integrate seating at Fulton County Stadium as a condition for Aaron and the Milwaukee Braves to move south. I think it's worth you know circling back to SB202 itself. And there have been a bunch of useful pieces. Georgia Public Broadcasting had one. The New York Times had one. Just about the various kind of things that are in the bill and that aren't in the bill. And it's not as like simple and explicit as, being, you know, some of the early drafts are like, no voting on Sundays and like things that mm-hmm. seem like kind of obvious to target this increased voting power of black communities and people of color in Georgia that led to Democrats winning Senate seats and led to Joe Biden winning the state in 2020. But the stuff that's actually in the bill, it's like a little bit more kind of confusing what the effect is going to be, or like maybe some things might actually be good, but like the increased voter ID requirements are going to likely disenfranchise black voters disproportionately. And I think it's important to look at that stuff and read that stuff. But the most important thing is to look at who's behind this. Mm -hmm. And just back to what you were saying, Joel, this was a movement and it's going on across the entire country that's entirely based on the fact that Donald Trump lost. And if you look at the architects of this, both in the state and in the groups that are kind of writing this model legislation, it's all like these stop the steal people. Mm-hmm. And this guy, Hans von Spakovsky, who's been pushing like voter fraud lies for decades. And so it feels to me like, again, while it's important to look at what the law actually says, like this is fruit from a poison tree. Yeah. The thing that I think is complicated for Major League Baseball and other corporations is that this is basically an argument about whether we can just forget what happened with the election and with the stop the steal thing and with the Capitol riot and just kind of quote unquote, go back to normal and allow the people that did this to just be kind of reassimilated into like polite society and politics, or whether these people and these ideas need to be just drummed out of everything. 
it is, I think, important to lay a marker down like maybe Major League Baseball is doing. I don't know if they're intending to do this, but maybe like practically they are and say, this is like not what we are as America. This is not what we should be doing. But I do feel like there is going to be this kind of cultural and political forgetting and these people are going to be kind of reassimilated. And so this is a really important moment right now where the kind of early lines are being drawn about what's going to be okay and what isn't. Yeah, I think that's an that's an important point to make because the marker that's being laid down is just saying no, saying no to this nonsense. Mitch McConnell on Monday morning said corporations will invite serious consequences if they become a vehicle for far-left mobs to hijack our country from outside the constitutional order. And Major League Baseball is saying this is nonsense and it should be ignored. And But this is like Republicans against like Delta and Coke. I mean, can you imagine mm-hmm. yeah. like Delta and Coke being, you know, considered part of the like woke quote unquote the I, resistance. The, word. the resistance. The woke, the woke yeah. liberal yeah. mob. <laughs> yeah. If you're going to take the fight to anybody, you might as well do it against Brian Kemp, a guy who ascended politically in large part through his own efforts at attacking, quote, voter fraud and pushing through regressive voter suppression efforts. Like that that guy is one of the if there was a Mount Rushmore of people uh, who were behind voter suppression efforts in this country, it would be Brian Kemp, uh, a guy who is notorious for, you know, basically running his own gubernatorial election against Stacey Abrams, and then basically empowering Stacey Abrams a couple years later when she's led, you know, the Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff uh, Senate victories a few years later. So, yeah, I mean, if you're going to take the fight to anybody, it might as well be Brian Kemp. And I actually, you know, I'm, I'm glad you, you brought that up, Josh, because I had one uh, quick thing to, to point out, and it's sort of a little bit of field, but I've been pointing this out on Twitter for the last couple years, and I think the last few days have pretty much validated Everything I've ever thought about the sort of people who unironically deploy the words woke and cancel culture in these sort of debates, like from Donald Trump to Brian Kemp and so on, they've co-opted what was once a really cool term, woke, like meaning the moment that a black person becomes aware of the impact that racism has in every facet of their life. Like that's something that I grew up with that. That was the term that we use for it, even ironically or unironically, whatever. And now they're using it to bolster anti-black arguments and debate points. So like to me, Personally, woke is the new N-word or the new N-word lover. And there's no way that you can look at the gradual bastardization of the word and tell me otherwise. Though, of course, Stefan is our resident words expert here. But there's actually a really good article in the Washington Post last week about the journey cancel culture and woke have taken in the last few years. And and even Dr. Meredith Clark at Florida A&M has been doing lots of good work and research on those terms the past few years. So all that to say, if you weren't using woke prior to 2018, you're suspect And I, for one, can hear that dog whistle, you asshole. Thank you for that, Joel. And I want to end with some uncertainty because what happened with the NBA and the All-Star Game in North Carolina is that HB2, the trans bathroom bill, was repealed. They didn't have the All-Star Game there in 2017, but they did. They rescheduled it, and it was there in 2019. I don't know what's going to happen here. It seems unlikely that Brian Kemp and his allies in Georgia are going to be like, you know what, our bad. And so what does Major League Baseball do? You know, they're trying to thread this needle here. You can look at it from one perspective and say, 
in a sea of like bad corporate choices, they're actually trying to avoid conflict as much as they can. But this is not going to go away. And Stefan, I don't think there's necessarily going to be a moment like the NBA had where it says like, all right, our side won. We can go back to normal now and like start giving Georgia the things that we took away. Or maybe baseball just looks at Atlanta and Georgia and says, we'll leave the team there, but we're not going to participate. Maybe they actually take an actual stand where they... The Braves aren't a bad team. Like They could, could be, be in the World, World Series, Series there. there. I know, I know. Well, this is the inherent... You know, this is the inherent risk with having teams in lots of different cities and in states with <laughs> lots of different, you know, uh, political leanings. I think the the main thing baseball did here was that it looked at the potential risk. Oh, we're going to alienate conservative fans. And it said, unlike the NFL, it said, okay, we're going to call everybody's bluff here. Oh, and we should also say, I mentioned the tour championship, but like, Obviously, nobody's talking about the Masters, Masters. which is this week Mm. in Georgia, because just like nobody (laughs) expects the Masters to do anything. (laughs) I mean, absolutely. Also, just real quick, like uh, NBA just had its All-Star game there in in February. And in in Georgia, all these same debates were happening then. I mean, for all of the talk about the progressive bona fides that the NBA has, I mean, you know, LeBron is the face of the more than a vote organization. Mm-hmm. They were right there. They knew it was all happening and they still had the all-star game there. So, I mean, I, we, I mean, we don't have to let the NBA off the hook on this either, by the way. Coming up next, our interview with Victoria Jackson about the NCAA's Supreme Court case and the landscape for paying college athletes. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It's been quite a few weeks for the NCAA, publicly shamed for its inequitable, sexist, and shabby treatment of the women's basketball tournament, targeted by players for refusing to let athletes earn money off of their popularity, and finally, while arguing literally against giving athletes a few extra bucks to be used for education, rebuked by justices of the Supreme Court of the United States. Writing in the Chronicle of Higher Education, sports historian Victoria Jackson noted the irony of last week's SCOTUS hearing taking place during a men's tournament that generates upwards of a billion dollars a year in television revenue alone for the NCAA and its member schools. Collegiate basketball players, Jackson wrote, are laboring to fund the legal argument that they should not be entitled to more educational benefits. Victoria Jackson is an assistant professor of history at Arizona State University and a former NCAA champion distance runner. She joins us now. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. It's great to have you with us. Let's start with the Supreme Court case, Alston versus NCAA. The case started as a broader assault on amateurism, but it ended on this pretty narrow point about athletes being entitled to educational benefits like buying a laptop or studying abroad, which practically 
and monetarily seems like not such a big deal. Why is this case so important and why is the NCAA fighting it so aggressively? Uh, Seth Waxman, who uh, was the lawyer representing the NCAA, said that any sort of payment beyond scholarships and the full cost of attendance would amount to pay for play. So um, this kind of reveals that they anticipate future litigation, that if athletes are in fact permitted to receive more monies for education benefits from their schools, then there would be further litigation challenging kind of this whole idea of amateurism. And I think the fear is that ultimately at the end of the day, the house of cards will tumble and fall down. The way that the oral arguments went last week, I think was it wasn't what I anticipated. And based on what I had read, it wasn't what most people had anticipated. The New York Times headline coming out of it was, Supreme Court seems ready to back payments to student athletes. And just looking through some of the quotes here, Brett Kavanaugh, the antitrust law should not be a cover for exploitation of the student athletes. Amy Coney Barrett, are you saying consumers love watching unpaid people playing sports? This sort of um, withering commentary from the conservatives on the court was pretty remarkable. And I will also say that the most surprising thing for me was Clarence Thomas knowing what the transfer portal is. But that's more of a side point. Were you surprised to hear the likes of Kavanaugh, Barrett, and and others being so critical of the NCAA here? Yeah, I mean, we, we heard near uniformity in skepticism and criticism and awareness of what this collegiate model really is. It's pretending all athletes are the same. It's higher education running a professional sports entertainment industry. This ruling is narrow in that it's about education benefits. It's also narrow in that the athletes are only football and men's and women's basketball players. And I think this is really testament to people like Ramogi Huma, Andy Schwartz, you know, Taylor Branch writing that powerful piece, The Shame of College Sports in the Atlantic in 2011. You know, but but also an acknowledgement to the groundwork laid by people like Harry Edwards, Bill Roden, looking at what this is from kind of a bird's eye view. But I think not only was I surprised that the conservative justices have an awareness of what this enterprise really is, it was also surprising that those who we might think would be more critical of the NCAA's arguments were not, um, Justice Sotomayor in particular. So it, it was almost like we saw like Alito setting up Kavanaugh, setting up Amy Coney Barrett to like slam dunk this. And then Sotomayor pressing pause. That was what I saw as kind of fascinating. In hearing these arguments from the justices, and it, it sort of, at least to me, speaking for myself, it sort of revealed to me how antiquated and how stupid all of this sounds, like just the whole amateur athletic system. So in that way, did, did, to you, did it feel like just hearing the NCAA argue for itself on behalf of itself before Supreme Court sort of revealed like how corrupt the enterprise is, like having the arguments before people who are theoretically not that uh, knowledgeable about the intricacies of like amateurism and professionalism. But, but, you know, did did that kind of strike you too? Yeah, you know, this is an antitrust case. And so the NCAA is in a position where they're trying to defend, you know, an artificial restraint on the compensation that athletes get. So I think it's it's pretty hard from the start, but then, you know, drawing a line at 
grants and aid up to the full cost of attendance, but then saying, well, anything more than that, even if it's tethered to education, is clearly pay for play. I mean, that's a really hard argument to make. I think Waxman tried, but, you know, ultimately it's, I think we're going to see a ruling in favor of the athletes. I mean, I think that's pretty clear. Seven of the justices seem to be very skeptical of what the NCAA was arguing, but the language will really matter in what that decision is because of, you know, these kind of anticipated future challenges. You know, I think what we've seen over the last, you know, five to 10 years is this chipping away at the historic arguments that the NCA has made. And yet what we still saw in the arguments before the Supreme Court is the the durability of the this bullshit argument of, of or this bullshit idea of amateurism in college sports. And it reflected the way that the NCA's long con about amateurism has been really successful in as much as you had two of the most liberal justices in the Supreme Court buying into the notion that there's something different about college sports because athletes don't get paid. Sotomayor said, how do we know that we're not just destroying the game as it exists? Breyer said, I wonder a lot about judges getting into the business of deciding how amateur sports should be run. That made me a little less optimistic because this more than the 70-year-old argument and longer, centuries-plus-old argument about amateurism still has this power in certain quarters. Do you think it's being chipped away enough? And how quickly can we get to the point where you know, athletes get what they deserve. Yeah, the, I mean, the artificiality of amateurism, like the rules around what athletes can receive um, to be on the clean side of this line has changed over time. And sometimes it flips, like grants and aid untethered from academic merit used to be on the dirty side. And now that's on the clean side. And the booster subsidization used to be on the clean side. So yeah, these ideas around um, the artificiality of amateurism are pretty clear. The big business growing around this enterprise has accelerated in the last 20 years. And I think that's why it's so clear and so much easier for justices to call out the entertainment business that this is operating in higher ed. The business accelerated from about $4 billion a year to $14 billion a year in a period of less than 20 years. And because you know the compensation is restrained for the athletes, that money has to go somewhere because you also can't have big kind of surpluses at the end of each fiscal year. Um, you have to spend that money. So it's why we see the accelerated spending and coaching compensation. It's why we see, you know, schools just in this unbelievable competitive facilities arms race, building bigger and grander and more ludicrous football facilities in particular with indoor slides and airline design sleep pods and locker rooms. Um, so I think that more than anything has exposed the artificiality of this. But, you know, if we're thinking about amateurism and we're thinking about sports in schools, this is also all predicated on the idea that it's in service of the students who play sports. The fact that we're talking about consumer interest really reveals that this is an entertainment enterprise. It's not sports in schools serving students. And what frustrated me is that we're, we're taking that consumer interest and the, the necessity to protect that as our baseline kind of fact mm -hmm. and argument. And it's not acknowledging the reality that sports and schools developed in this way is unique in the world. And that's not necessarily something we should be celebrating. 
um, especially when the students it's purported to serve are not being served and are not graduating on par with the athletes and other sports or other students at the university as well. Yeah, those are great points. And I think in thinking about what the outcome here is going to be, I just found Kavanaugh to be really interesting because he said on the one hand to Waxman, um, who's arguing on behalf of the NCAA, if players are receiving $6,000 a year, how are you arguing that that's an exorbitant amount when the TV contracts are in the billions? On the flip side, Kavanaugh also said to Jeffrey Kessler, arguing for Alston, what's your in game here? And I think there was a, a sort of concern across a lot of different justices about this idea of a slippery slope. Mm-hmm. And we're in this moment where there's name, image, and likeness legislation in the states. There's It's being talked about in Congress in this kind of bipartisan way. And all of this stuff is going to be in some handled in some part uh, or multiple parts of our federal government in the legislative branch, in the, maybe in the executive branch, but also in the judicial branch. And it does not seem like the justices were particularly excited about Alston in the future being used as a vehicle to have them repeatedly kind of assess this and make more potentially radical decisions. And so maybe does that maybe point to them trying to, you know, whether it's like remand this or have some like limited ruling with like very careful language, because while they're maybe not sympathetic to the NCAA, they also just don't seem particularly excited about blowing up the whole thing. I think that's why we haven't seen kind of radical change in this space, because nobody wants to be blamed for ruining college sports. I think the timing of everyone coming off a pandemic (laughs) also might suggest that we could see some hedging um, as far as kind of a radical intervention that we've heard. Um, The College Athletes Bill of Rights that a whole slew of senators led by Cory Booker and Richard Blumenthal, you know, Senator Chris Murphy from Connecticut as well. Their strategy is to wait and see what happens with these state bills, um, these state name, image, and likeness bills. Uh, There's a fear that the whole enterprise is going to collapse. And I'm very, very optimistic. The one thing that I do know is that we are still going to have elite sports and schools in the United States. If that means that football and basketball break off, that might happen. And I don't think that the identity of the players on the field or on the court matters to consumers, to fans. They're not thinking about the student identity of those athletes. They're thinking about their own relationships and attachments and ideas of what it means to go to college. Um, And so if a football player is making some money and a scholarship to the school that he's playing for includes, you know, a scholarship in that compensation package and a lifetime scholarship at that so they could come back and, you know, go to school at any time or get multiple degrees, like the fans and the people who have attachments to that university will not change because it's their idea of college, which draws them to this sport, you know, singing the songs and all those shared traditions that we have and these attachments that are local and also generational won't change. The idea that that athletes being unpaid is what makes them attractive or that athletes even are students is what makes them attractive. I would challenge those ideas because, again, it's it's not about the players on the field. It's about the fans' connections to the schools that those players are playing for. 
And that's an argument that the NCAA made, that, that people like to watch college sports because they're not paid. Right, Joel? Right, right, right. That, 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 they, that they really, really enjoy uh, somehow. I mean, the thing is, too, if you're a college sports fan and you watch the revenue-producing sports, I think everybody sort of understands that some people are getting paid, and it doesn't really seem to bother people in, like, Georgia or Alabama, right? Like, I mean, you think they would be shocked if, and appalled if they'd heard that Devontae Smith had gotten some inducement to uh, stick around Tuscaloosa. But e- neither here nor there. I actually had a question for you, uh, Victoria, uh, sort of related to uh, your piece in the Chronicle of Higher Education. And so I'm actually a little bit concerned of, like, what happens next if there is radical change, because it's not like... Institutions of higher learning are known for extending educational opportunities to people of color, right? Like, I'm just like, all right, if these opportunities, if these scholarships are pulled, what happens in that absence? And you also mentioned in your piece that, you know, that perhaps Austin, the Austin case could provide a corrective to the ways in which black athletes have failed in their pursuit of education. So could you explain that a little bit more, like what black athletes could stand to gain if there is a major change to the current system? I I spent some time in that piece talking about returning to athletes a feeling of of having their own power and being in charge of their educational opportunities while they're in college. So much of that has been taken away from a position of thinking it's helping athletes, right? Oh, we're going to help you sign up for classes and we're going to make sure you have scheduled, structured tutoring time. And, you know, we're helping you on this project so you don't have to make so many decisions. And I think what that does is it, it really harms athletes um, and, and closes a lot of doors for potential to see and get excited about educational opportunities. I mean, this is what's so great about college sports is that it's a pathway to earn a degree and to go on to do things you might never do. I was not planning to become a historian when I went to college. I wanted to be, do something related to math. And I took a history class and I fell in love with history and that launched me on an entirely new trajectory. So when when those of us who've benefited from this system are being critical of it, it's it's from a place of frustration knowing that we can do mm-hmm. better. And now that I'm an educator, I certainly know that we could be doing better. I think a lot of these predominantly white institutions are also failing <laughs> in serving black students in general. I mean, statistically, we know that black students are underrepresented at the state flagship universities and their systems. And so sports have also kind of served as a band-aid in that way, especially because these athletes are so high profile and we see them so much. It gives the perception that these schools have done more since Brown to desegregate and they haven't. And so Mm -hmm. we should be placing blame here with the schools, not the NCAA. It's university leaders who've made the decisions that have accelerated this business as well with conference realignment, with the conference TV deals, with the college football playoff, with the autonomy move. I mean, this is on universities to be doing better by both black athletes and black students. One recurrent pattern that I've seen is that when you tell people who aren't sports fans about what the NCAA rules are, they Hmm. can't believe them. Like when I've written pieces for Slate, for instance, about the fact that, and some of this has changed since I wrote this piece, but the fact that a coach could block a player from transferring to a specific school, people are like, what the hell? Like that is insane. Um, Like the Taylor Branch piece and the Atlantic that laid all this stuff out was I think a super 
effective and important in exposing the realities of the NCA to people who don't follow this. Because I feel like, and I'll put myself in this category, that like as a sports fan, you kind of get lulled into thinking that this stuff is normal. And hmm. you're like, oh, that's just like the way that it is and the way that it has been and will be. But I think this Supreme Court case and those oral arguments are just like another example of that trend. Like the uh, Supreme Court justices in this case are kind of like the normies. And they're like, wait, you're telling me <laughs> you're telling me that like this is the way that you operate and that like you think paying giving players a couple thousand dollars will like irreparably damage things. And it it was just like stark to me. It just seemed like another example. And maybe this is the case with the name, image, and likeness stuff too, Victoria, that like the more people know about this stuff, the less kind of steady the NCA's ground seems to be. Right, right. Because the NCA has always been sort of a wizard of Oz, right? Behind a curtain doing these things, making us believe that this is normal. And what we're seeing here is that you know, state legislatures and Congress now are are awake to what name, image, and likeness means. And in the Supreme Court case, you had the Solicitor General of the United States arguing on behalf of the plaintiffs, saying that, quote, amateurism is not its own free-floating ideal under the antitrust laws. So that's two of the three branches of government sort of starting to get it. Um, and the Supreme Court maybe will look at it and decide that they should be on the right side of this as well. The the schools have managed to get away with having it both ways, not really for the last hundred years, like Waxman was arguing, but probably for the last 50 years. They pretend it's educational, they call it educational. Anytime there's any sort of challenge, they point to the educational benefits. And that's absolutely true for some of the athletes. But in the meantime, they've been just very aggressively growing this business. And I think, yeah, we're, we're going to see, I think, all the branches of government seeing that clearly and recognizing that because the schools have failed to take ownership of this themselves and chart a new path, that it's time for some sort of government intervention. Victoria Jackson is an assistant professor of history at Arizona State University. What did you win your NCAA championship in, the 5K? 10,000 meters, twice that. 10. And Stefan, Stefan, you yeah. called her a former champion in the intro. I mean, you're always a champion. You, she doesn't. That's true. She didn't get stripped of her championship just because. I, I apologize yeah. to that, Victoria. But thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. I love hang up and listen. So this is awesome. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. And now it is time for After Balls. We mentioned in our interview with Victoria Jackson that the NCAA case is called Alston v. NCAA. And the Alston is Sean Alston. He was a running back at West Virginia from 2009 to 12. He ran for 1,068 yards in his career. Ben Strauss profiled him in the New York Times in 2017 when 
he became uh, when he was a, a litigant here. And the background to his becoming involved was pretty simple. He saw a sports centerpiece about the lawsuit against EA Sports over name, image, and likeness way back in 2013, called the lawyers, and eventually filed his own case. And then the next year, the lawyers asked if he'd be willing to join a new case on whether the NCAA set illegal limits on what athletic scholarships could cover. And that appealed to him because... Alston described his undergraduate experience as having, and he told this to Ben Strauss, that he often went to bed hungry. He struggled to pay for basic necessities like clothing and groceries. His scholarship didn't cover his costs. And then when he graduated in three years, started taking master's classes, he discovered that he was no longer eligible for a Pell Grant, had to take out a $5,500 loan to cover living expenses for his last year at West Virginia. Important footnote here, Sean Alston, Signed as a free agent after graduating with the New Orleans Saints and was released, Josh, and then went on to become more famous as a litigant in the 2014 case, which was settled. And then this uh, it was settled with a $230 million settlement for players who didn't get for this grant and aid scholarship. But then this second case was filed, the one that went to the Supreme Court last week. So he gets credit for pressuring the NCA, but as it turns out, Ben Strauss discovered that Sean Alston weirdly doesn't think that athletes should straight get paid. He told him, how do you differentiate who gets what from player to player and school to school? It's touchy. I don't think it's that touchy. Josh, what's your Sean Alston? I've also got an Alston v. NCAA-related afterball. As noted earlier in the program, the biggest surprise of oral arguments for me was that Justice Clarence Thomas is aware of the existence of the NCAA transfer portal. (laughs) Perhaps I shouldn't have been so shocked. Transfers have been one of the big stories in college sports in the last few years, college football. Transfers like Joe Burrow. Remember him? Who's that? Uh, Justin Fields. I think you know him. Top Mm. NFL prospect Jalen Hurts have uh, led their teams to glory. Some have led their teams to greater glory than others, but transfer quarterbacks are are a big thing. In basketball, the Washington Post had a recent headline, the transfer portal has taken Houston, Baylor, Gonzaga, and UCLA to the Final Four. The transfer portal, it's everywhere these days. New York Post, college basketball coaches furious with Wild West transfer portal. The Bemidji pioneer, Bemidji state goalie, Zach Briscoll, enters transfer portal, All right, so you might be wondering, where is Bemidji State? It's in Bemidji, Minnesota. Who is Zach Briscoll? He was the goalie for Bemidji State, but now he's in the transfer portal. Uh, No, what I meant to say is, you might be wondering, what is the NCAA transfer portal? That is a better question. It has existed since 2018. According to the NCAA, it's a compliance tool to systematically manage the transfer process from start to finish, add more transparency to the process among schools, and empower student-athletes to make known their desire to consider other programs. Hmm. Let me take another crack at that so it sounds less like corporate garbage. When any college athlete in any sport wants to leave their school and go to a different one, they put their name in this portal thing to officially declare they want to transfer. That then opens the door for other schools to start contacting them and recruiting them. Okay, but you might still be wondering, Josh, what is the NCAA transfer portal? 
A Google image search turns up a piece published in the NCAA's Champion magazine in the fall of 2019, which includes a graphic of a football player and what appears to be some kind of Star Trek teleportation rig. This player is in full uniform. It's in the, is in the midst of sort of dematerializing, getting beamed up from Tuscaloosa because he looks like he's wearing Alabama colors and going to God knows where. Now, the story is headlined what the NCAA transfer portal is and what it isn't. And when I clicked through the story that um, the image was connected to on Google Image Search, that image was not actually there. What is the NCAA trying to hide about the NCAA transfer portal? In 2018, the sports writer Brett McMurphy posted a screenshot of the portal. So we do actually know what the portal is and what it looks like. And what the NCAA is trying to hide is that this is a god darn database. It's just a stupid database. Just a list of names. You can filter it by sport and conference and name and date. It sounds very useful, actually, but it's also extremely boring. Uh, Another thing I learned that was very disappointing, and you guys might not know this, the players themselves do not actually get to enter the transfer portal. As Syracuse.com explains, the steps for Division I athletes are The athlete tells his or her compliance office that he, she wants to transfer. The compliance office has two business days to digitally register that athlete in the portal. So it's just some bureaucrat. As an athlete, you don't even get the, you know, the pleasure of putting your name in the transfer portal. You have to like tell some functionary and then they do it for you. I did find a 43-page PowerPoint on how to use the transfer portal. It was honestly so boring that I almost regretted choosing this topic for an afterball. I will read you from page 41 of this 43-page PowerPoint. If an institution's SSO administrator has granted a coach access to the transfer portal, a coach will have view-only privileges. This provides a coach access to view other transfers, transfer watch list, and resources. There's 43 more pages of this uh, where that came from, if you're interested. In a piece in 2010, Jason Kirk, then of SB Nation, written a bunch for Slate, love Jason, he argued very persuasively, the NCAA must make Transfer Portal worthy of its awesome name. Jason's argument, uh, which I fully endorse and will now quote from, is that the NCAA, in the name of academics and being great, must either, number one, change the name to Transfer Database, number two, create a Transfer Portal video game, But first, a college football video game that players can profit from, preferably one with transfer portals. Or number three, create an actual transfer portal, which would look something like this, but probably better, because I don't think anyone used this one. He then pasted in the poster from the movie The Time Machine, starring Guy Pearce. (laughs) Although I prefer an idea from higher up in Jason's piece, uh, a screenshot from the original Super Mario Brothers, showing Mario uh, entering a warp zone by squatting on top of a large pipe. So... The NCAA has a bunch of different options, and this journey that I went on is frankly disturbing and disappointing. I mean, Joel, did you even did you know that you can't even enter the stupid database, much less like squat on a pipe to warp to uh, LSU? How could I really have so much critique for something that gave us Johnny Juzang at UCLA? <laughs> I That's mean, true. You know, I mean, the I, I, awesome. <laughs> amazing, beautiful database that you can sort by name and then mm. sent Johnny Juzang to the West Coast. Yeah, and Quentin Grimes to H-Town, you know what I'm saying? Shout out Cougs. 
I wish that that had existed when I was in school because I think that was one of the more daunting things. Like I, I thought about briefly transferring to play football somewhere else, but it seemed so overwhelming at the time. And I'm kind of like lazy in terms of like paperwork. Like that's just nothing I want to do. And I can only imagine how much more pronounced that was when I was 20 years old. You know, I, I wasn't interested in, in figuring all that out. But, you know, you never know. I could have been at what was then known as Southwest Texas State. But no, there that was no transfer portal. That is actually interesting, not, not, to, not to take this in a more serious direction. But I do feel like, Joel, and tell me if this is wrong, that actually there being more of like kind of a culture and a norm around transferring like there is now. I mean, coaches are talking about it as a wild west, but from a perspective of like uh, a player like yourself, maybe if you just saw hundreds, maybe even thousands of other players doing this, it would have just felt like, okay, that's like a thing that would be fine for me to do if I want to do that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like if you just like, yeah, if it, if you knew so many other people and you knew that there was just like a fairly easy standardized process to get it done. Um, if you knew I think that a lot an institution's SSO administrator could grant a coach access, you'd be like, <laughs> okay, that seems, that seems I, cool. <laughs> I'm actually going in my head, going back to TCU in the late 90s, trying to figure out who our SSO administrator would have been. I'm like, who? Would it have been Rick Villarreal? I don't, anyway, so yeah, I, I'll, I'll work it out later. That is our show for today. Our producer this week was Margaret Kelly. To listen to the past shows, subscribe or reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us with your NCAA portal ideas, hangup at slate.com. We'll pass them on to, uh, to the NCAA. I think we've got some good ideas here. And please subscribe to the show. That would be nice of you to do that and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson, Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.